Thank you to the Hall family. Just want to give a reminder that we will not be having the Sunday night study tonight due to baccalaureate, but just want to encourage you to, to go to that. Uh, also wanted to mention that the movie Hope in the Holy Land, which a number of us saw earlier this year, Justin Crown, who this church has had a relationship with uh, him for many years, helped co-produce that, that uh, film, came out this week. Uh, it's available to either rent or buy at hopeintheholyland.com. I think for anybody who saw it, uh, it's, it's a great documentary and, and very eye-opening and informative and um, to a subject that, you know, the situation in Israel right now, it's been in the news this week, and uh, I think it's a subject that most of us, uh, probably all of us, you know, wouldn't consider ourselves experts on the diplomacy and politics going on in that region, and, uh, but I think the movie really, again, it's very informative. Um, also, if you could pray for me this week, last couple of days I've just been a little bit off balance. I don't mean like emotionally or like with my lifestyle. I mean like walking around, but it feels like it, I don't know. I think I might have like an, an inner ear problem, but otherwise feel good. Uh, but just if you could pray for that, I'd appreciate it. We'll be in John chapter 14 this morning. Those exceptionally good slides uh, were put together by Carrie, who's in the sound booth this morning. John chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not, not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this day and opportunity to come together to worship you through prayer, through song, and through the preaching of your word. And Lord, I pray for this time this morning that all of us would be pointed to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Our society does not handle death well. And I believe at least part of the reason for that is that many of us don't really have to deal with seeing death. A century ago, most people died at home. According to a Stanford study, now only about 20% of people die in their homes. Most people die in hospitals or nursing homes. A century ago, and the farther back you go, the more common it was that a funeral would typically be at a person's home. And it would be the family who would clean and dress the person for their funeral. Sometimes you'd have several days with a dead person in your house. You saw death. People lived shorter lives. Today, 
Funerals are becoming less common with modern day practices. When there's a funeral, the focus is on making a person look as lifelike as possible. Funerals generally are not handled by families. It's outsourced to an industry of funeral homes who handle the process. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm just observing it. Funerary practices are essentially a universal human custom. But it's becoming increasingly popular for Americans to opt to do nothing when they die. No funeral, no memorial, no celebration of life, no visitation. We don't handle death well. For many, it's an uncomfortable and taboo subject. But for Christians, we should not grieve as others do who have no hope. In our section today, while Jesus is looking ahead to the cross that awaits him, he is bringing comfort to the disciples and talking about the promise and hope of heaven which is found in Christ. Briefly, to remind us of where we are in John's Gospel, it's the Last Supper. In the preceding passage at the end of chapter 13, Jesus has told the disciples of his impending departure. Peter has questioned this and said that he wants to go with Jesus. Jesus says that Peter cannot go with him and predicts his denial. And I think it's important to remember that because chapter 14 is the continuation of chapter 13. It's the same stream of thought that we ended with last week. And so this morning, we're going to look at our passage in four parts. And the main idea of this section is that Jesus is the way to life in a dying world. Part one, Jesus, Jesus presents the reason for our hope. Verse one, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus begins by giving a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. The human heart is often troubled. For the disciples, Jesus knew the harrowing experience that awaited them of seeing their Lord go to the cross and taken away from them. We have many troubling experiences in our own lives. We can have have anxieties over our health and the health of our family members. We can be stressed out about the state of affairs in our world. We can be troubled by the things that we fear or any number of things. And for the disciples, Jesus has the same message for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's easier said than done. There's a comedy sketch, I believe it's from the show Mad TV, that I really enjoy with comedian and actor Bob Newhart, where he plays a therapist, and a woman comes to him seeking help. In the sketch, and again, this is a comedy skit, the woman tells Bob Newhart that she has this fear of being buried alive in a box. And she talks about how it's really starting to interfere with her overall quality of life. Newhart reassures her that he can help, and that he has two words that if she would just apply them would totally overcome her fear of being buried. The woman takes out a pen and paper to write down the words. Newhart says, stop it. And the woman looks at him in disbelief. 
stop it. He says, yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it. And she goes, so I'm just supposed to stop being afraid? He's like, yes, because that sounds terrible. Just stop it. And as the sketch, sketch continues going, she talks about other fears that she has. And Newhart continues to give the same advice. Stop it. I think the humor in that skit is that that's how we can sometimes view the struggles of other people. Just stop feeling that way. Stop being stressed. Stop being worried. Stop being anxious. Stop letting your heart be troubled. It's easier said than done. At the Last Supper, it was a very trying situation. And Jesus commands his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. I think sometimes we can have that stop it attitude in churches. Or to put pressure on people to hide, to say that things are fine when sometimes they're not, to say we're okay when sometimes we're not, to feel this pressure to always look and present ourselves as being put together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus doesn't just say it, he commands it. We don't want to be disobedient, do we? But how do we follow that command? I think sometimes we can make the mistake of acting like the Bible calls us to be stoic. Stoicism is this idea of controlling your emotions and how you appear and present yourself to other people. Not showing emotions. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to just have a stiff upper lip when inside we're crumbling. In fact, in the Gospels, we see that there were times when Jesus himself was troubled. In the preceding chapter, right before Jesus predicts his betrayal, John chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Again in John 12, 27, when Jesus is looking forward to the time of his death, he's praying to God and says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus was troubled sometimes. Life is troubling sometimes. I think I've made this point before, but I wonder if in this area, part of it might be how German this area is to, again, always want to appear stoic, appear together. When I was at a former church, there was a a lady who had lost a son recently. I mean, like a few days before. And I asked how she was doing. Fine. It's like, you don't have to put up a front. You're not fine. But again, that's the pressure, not just in churches, but in society at large that I think we so often feel. To never want to just show that sometimes we're struggling. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. Again, stoicism is about self-control and how you present yourself. Jesus is not calling us to just muster up the strength as if we're fine when we're not. Because Jesus isn't calling us to just having the appearance 
of not worrying or being sad or whatever else. He's calling us to reality. To not have troubled hearts, Jesus also gives the command, believe in God, believe also in me. And I take both of those as imperative commands. We are to believe in God and to also believe in Jesus Christ. We need both. To believe in God without believing in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world is to not believe in the greatest revelation of truth that God has given to the world. Believing in Jesus without believing in the God who sent him is to disbelieve in our Father in heaven. And as this chapter further unfolds, Jesus will give perhaps the richest teaching in the Gospel of John on the Holy Spirit later on in chapter 14. And so the antidote to the troubled heart is the truth of God. Not just some vague, yeah, I believe in God. But having the Lord be your rock, be your strength, be your hope and your joy. Going to the Lord in your struggles. Leaning on him in your struggles. Going to him in prayer. Filling our minds with the truth and knowledge of the Lord. Going to him in faith. In Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is the Lord who is meant to be our comfort in times of trouble. Second point. Jesus prepares a place for his people. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 2, I think, is one of those Bible verses that's really so beautiful in its simplicity. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, I think sometimes we can get too caught up in the house metaphor. There was a popular Christian song. I forget if it was late 90s or early 2000s by a Christian band called Audio Adrenaline called Big Big House. I think sometimes we can wonder, what's the house like? What does it look like? Does it have a finished basement? How big is the house? I think that's all beside the point of this verse. And if you want to get technical, I think to a first century audience, any of the houses that we live in would have seemed like basically being in heaven. The point of verse 2 is really more that heaven is the abode of the Lord and that it's a place where there is sufficient space for the people of God to reside. Heaven is heaven because that's where God is. And Jesus talks of preparing a place for his people. Once again, what does that mean? Is he the foreman of a construction project in heaven? He was a carpenter. Maybe it makes sense. Is he building a place for us? I agree with D.A. Carson's interpretation of this verse that the preparation of the heavenly abode has more to do with Christ's redemptive work of going to the cross, 
His death, His resurrection, His exaltation, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the divine plan. It is those things which are the preparation. But that is another reason why our hearts should not be troubled. Because we have a Savior who gives us an eternally glorious inheritance. Life is not for the faint of heart. Again, there's so much junk that we have to deal with. There's so much that we see and experience that can bring us down. There's so much moral decay in our society and in the world that can make us cynical. There's so much wrong that we see in the world. And there are so many horrible things that people can suffer through. But we have a Savior who promises his people a future hope with him forever with the Lord. I think too many of us don't spend enough time thinking about heaven. That that is our hope. That is what we were made for. That is what God has promised us. And Jesus went to the cross so that we can have an eternal life in heaven. The Bible says that heaven is the place where God makes all things new. Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible says that heaven is the place where all the pains of this world are taken away. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I hear politicians talk. A lot of them paint a utopian picture of what society can be. We can never have a perfect society because the world is fallen and imperfect. But when we are glorified and in the presence of the Lord, there will be no more sin or pain or death. Jesus is the way to life in a dying world Because he prepares a heavenly place for us. Third point. Jesus promises a return to us. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where where, where I am, you may be also. I usually put my glasses on in the middle to make sure that I'm on the right slide. There's a logic to verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, the second part of the statement, I will come again and will take you to myself. Jesus did go to prepare a place for us. It was necessary for him to go to prepare a place for us. And because he has gone to prepare a place for us, we can have assurance that he will come again and take us back to be with himself. That there will be union with Christ. In theology, this doctrine is called eschatology. It comes from the Greek eschatos, which means last. It's the study of the last things. In John chapter 14, verse 3, is arguably the clearest statement in any of the Gospels of Christ's return. Eschatology 
It's kind of like the theoretical physics of the theology world. It's complicated. And there's several different views about the return of Christ. Some of you might be more familiar with those views than others here. Not to belabor the topic. Premillennialism is the idea that Jesus will return and reign for a thousand year period. Postmillennialism is basically the idea that the gospel will continue to go forward in the world in a millennial period. After that period, Christ will return. Amillennialism is the idea that Jesus will return without there being a specific, specific millennial period. Pan-millennialism is the idea that it will all pan out one way or another. But the one thing that all of those views agree on is a literal bodily return of Christ. It's interesting, sometimes in these cultic views, you'll hear some guy, every few years it's in the news, some guy predicts like a specific day where Jesus returns. And those people never admit that they're wrong. They always have some sort of asterisk they put, put on their prediction after it proves to be wrong. Well, Jesus did come back, but he just he wasn't visible. That is not the biblical view of the return of Christ, that it will be visible. He will literally bodily return to the world. And I would argue that that idea is an essential element of our faith. That as sure as Jesus came into the world at the incarnation, he will come again. And as sure as Jesus has risen from the dead, we have the promise that he will come again. The second coming is a necessary event in bringing all of the promises of Christ to their ultimate fulfillment. Without that, we have no reason to hope in Christ. And without that, Jesus is a liar. Jesus says that he will come again to bring us to himself. He says, so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus prepares a place for us. And Jesus will come again for the purpose of uniting his people to himself so that we can have access to the heavenly place that he has prepared for us. Fourth point, Jesus provides the way to heaven. Jesus has talked of the heavenly place he's preparing for his people in his return. Verse 4, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Now, it's true that the disciples know the way literally, as in they know Jesus and he is the way. And they know Jesus, and so they know the way where literally he is going. He has also told them the way to which he is going to his father and coming again. And in that sense, they know the way. They know that Jesus must be glorified and die. And that it is by way of his death and his resurrection. That that probably wasn't so obvious to the disciples. Thomas speaks up, verse 5. It's interesting, by the way. In this passage and in the following section, we have two questions, one from Thomas, one from Philip. In the previous section, Jesus has told Peter, who's always the apostle who speaks up, that Peter's going to betray him. And for the next 
Four chapters, four chapters, Peter's quiet. And it's almost like because Peter's quiet, that gives the other apostles a chance to speak. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Is there a more important question that a person can ask? How can we know the way? Verse 6, one of the most well-known verses in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. This is the sixth of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the way, like how Ohio State is the Ohio State University. He is the way. He's not a way. He's not the best way. Jesus is the way to God, the way to heaven, the way to forgiveness. And that's an absolute claim that Jesus makes. Now, that is an idea that in our society is very unpopular, the exclusivity of Christ. But that's what Jesus says, that he is the one way to God. There are people who believe that there are many ways to God. Many like to believe that getting into heaven is about how good a person is. I hear people all the time in conversations and things I read People who treat religions like they're basically all teaching the same things. And that none is truly any better or worse than any other. It reminds me of the parable of the three blind men and the elephant. And the parable, three men who are blind come to an elephant, but they all come to different parts of the elephant. Each of them has a different experience with the elephant. One of the men feels the trunk. It swings around and he feels the power of the elephant's trunk. A second man walks up and is to the side of the elephant. It feels like a wall. It's massive. Third guy walks up behind the elephant. Notices the smell more than anything else. Unpleasant. Stinky. They all have experiences that are true, but none of them has the full picture. And that's how some people treat religions. Like they all have a piece of the truth but none of them fully has the truth. But the problem with that parable is that it's assuming that you see the whole elephant and have the knowledge that they don't truly have the full truth. I think the idea that all roads lead to God and all religions are basically teaching the same thing appeals to our American sensibilities. Again, I hear people say things like that often. I'm sure some of you do as well. That no religion is any more true or any better than any other. You know who disagrees with that? Pretty much every religion. So for people who want to say that all roads lead to God, they are imposing an absolute upon all the religions of the world that they almost universally don't teach in order to avoid saying that some people are wrong. I think that appeals to people because it seems really enlightened and intellectual. But it's saying that you have a greater understanding of reality than all the world's religions. So I don't think that that's a humble position to take. 
I think it's actually kind of arrogant to say religions aren't quite as right as I am on this point. It's one thing to say what a religion teaches on a particular topic. It's another thing to speak for all religions. Especially when you're speaking for them for something that they don't teach. And often I think what actually happens is people basically superimpose the Christian worldview onto every other religion and assume that they just all have that worldview. Which, if you've ever read anything about Eastern religions, Nordic religions... Pagan religions is not true. Not all world religions believe in the idea of a loving God. Not all religions believe in the idea of a fundamentally good God. All religions are not basically teaching the same thing and that all roads lead to God. It's certainly, most importantly, not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus teaches. He doesn't teach you you can go any way. He teaches he's the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. The fact that Jesus is the truth and the life flows from Jesus being the way. Jesus is the truth. He is the ultimate revelation of God in the world. His word is truth. He speaks truth. And Jesus is the life. He is eternal. John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus has life in himself. In John chapter 11 verse 25, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. And he is the one who gives eternal life. The 15th century Dutch theologian Thomas Akempis, I think, sums up this verse very well. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the one who fulfills the Father's will and atones for the sins of humanity. Jesus has said, John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 1.18 says that while no one has ever seen God, Jesus makes God known. John 14.9, so in a couple of verses, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Jesus is the one to whom the Old Testament points. Really, a lot of these ideas are summed up at the end of our passage In verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There is no middle ground with Jesus. He didn't intend for there to be. 
Either you believe that he is the savior of the world who reconciles us to God, or you don't. But you cannot believe that Jesus is the way and believe that there are other ways. Because when there are other ways, Jesus' way makes no sense. When there are other ways, Jesus' life and ministry makes no sense. The cross makes no sense when there are other ways. Jesus died for humanity to show us that there is no other way. Jesus is the way to God, the revealed truth of God who gives us life with God. And the response to him is to follow him. I close this passage where I began. That on the night before he was crucified, Jesus told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. That's not a cold-hearted command to ignore our emotions and feelings. It's a compassionate call to know the Savior we have, what he has done for us, what he has prepared for us, and that he is coming back for us. Jesus invites us into a relationship to know him, to walk with him, and to hope in him and the true life that he promises through his life and death and resurrection. And to walk in that to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a great Savior, Lord. And may we know the truth of the gospel and live lives as people transformed by that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.